Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Everyone and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Sarah Fishman, the author of From Vichy to the Sexual Revolution, Gender and Family Life in Postwar France, and the book was published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Hi there, Sarah. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really thrilled. Would you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France? Uh, okay, well, um, obviously I teach French history at the University of Houston. Um, and this actually, it's kind of a, a strange thing. It goes back to the age of three. My dad was a chemistry professor and he did a sabbatical at the University of Bordeaux. Huh. And so those are my very earliest memories of, of France. Um, and I think that kind of explains maybe subconsciously a little bit, but what drew me to study the language and study abroad and do all of that and combine that with my fascination with World War II, which is where I started my research, was, you know, France during the occupation. And I did a senior honors thesis, and I was going to be in France. And I said, well, you know, what if I interview people about the war? So that's where that got mm-hmm. started. It's just sort of always been, I guess, that's kind of, you know, going back a lot longer probably than some people. And what brought you to this project in particular? As you said, you've worked on the war before. Did you want to pick up threads from your previous work and pursue them? What made you decide to write this book that deals with the post-war? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And yes, I did want to pick up threads. So I had written about uh, prisoner of war wives and thought about what happened after their husbands returned. Uh, I'd written about juvenile delinquency, juvenile crime, which also undergoes a, a major reform uh, right after the war. And I kind of do like, you know, in both books, I kind of follow through a little bit after the mm-hmm. war, but I was 
so curious to kind of see, well, you know, what, just sort of to dive into that period and see what happens. Uh, and the second thing is when I was doing the second book on juvenile crime, I had access to juvenile court records in four different cities in France. And I realized going through those records that you just get a huge amount of information about families mm-hmm. um, and the level of detail, you know, like when the first tooth came in, kind of right. <laughs> exactly how much their rent is and, you know, their income from each person. And, furnishings and the way that, you know, everything. And so I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to use this not to look at the kid, but to look at the family. And these are families that are hard to find in the documentation. Yeah. And I'm going to want to come back. I have a whole bunch of questions about the sources that you bring uh, to, to, this, mm-hmm. to this project. But before we do, the emphasis in the book is on gender and family life. So I guess I want to ask you, Sarah, how you see the book um, as a response to, a contribution to, and even, you know, in various ways, a challenge to existing work on gender and the family in the post-war period. Right. Well, I think when I first started on this book, I was uh, dissatisfied with what was happening. It seemed to me that post-war history went from political, economic, Cold War and markets and things like that. It sort of skipped over the social phase and went right to the cultural. And, you know, I'm reading all these things thinking, I know what the families were living like during the war. This doesn't sound, you know, these fast cars and and clean bodies do not sound like the families I was diving into during the war. So when when do they get this stuff? Um, so I guess that um, what I was trying to do was a, a real social history as I define it. And as I, my interest is, is sort of looking at the, from the ground up and really getting into real people and their real lives. And so I think that was different than um, what had come out when I got started. Since I've gotten started, there's been some other really excellent things. And I don't want to say that they weren't good works sure, as course. they were. My challenge was, well, how do I get below that level to real people's lives? I think at some point, maybe it's in the introduction, Sarah, you talk about, you know, how the existing scholarship doesn't emphasize the kind of relationship to Vichy of the post-45 period, especially the immediate, you know, decade or so after. And right. So, yeah, I guess I wanted to ask you about your position as a historian who's worked on the war coming into this, looking for continuities, maybe challenging the idea that 44-45 is as much of a break as uh, some historians of the post-war proceed as if it is. Uh, If you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, actually. And one of the things that always struck me um, about uh, the works that pick up in the post-war is that they start in the post-war. And it's not a clean slate. And if you look back at the way people were thinking about family life, then from where we are now, yes, it looks conservative. What struck me having had my head totally in the World War II period for so long to come out and read the stuff that's coming out after the war, it was like, oh my God, this is revolutionary. (laughs) It struck me as a, a pretty radical change from Vichy. So the way that I sort of think of it now is that peacetime is often followed by a desire to go back to normal, that Vichy was the first attempt, and they wanted to go back to the Mm pre-revolution, that post-war France wanted to go back, but as I said in one of my talks, back to the future. They wanted to go back to the 30s, Mm -hmm. which already was, as you know, a period in which people thought they were being very modern. Mm -hmm. You also, Sarah, suggest that, that the book is less presentist than some existing scholarship. And I guess I wanted to ask you about that. You know, the way when you look at the study of gender and family and sexuality in the post-war period, how much that has been determined by, you know, where the author 
is sitting, where the you know contemporary historiographic debates are at at that moment, looking back on either Vichy or the later forties and fifties and sixties, like how how do you see the book as a response to presentism in that sense? Right, um, and again, you know, I understand that you have to pick a start date, and that the post-war is sort of its own kind of era. Mm-hmm. But again, I think you know that people live their lives forward in time. You know, they don't have a four-year life during Vichy <laughs> and then disappear. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, it's the same people who, you know, wives who are being told to go back home when they couldn't, and their husbands were POWs, and now, you know, three years later, the husbands are home, but they're you know, undergoing post-traumatic stress, or, you know, it's the same people, right. and and that's the uh, that's the beauty of these court documents is you just dive into these people's lives, and it it can be overwhelming sometimes. During the war, there weren't that many families that stuck out as dysfunctional in the in the extreme. Because there was so much petty theft going on. But after the war, the kids that end up in the system tend to come from the more dysfunctional families. And again, I'm not using the social worker's judgment as the only judgment of these families, but you can see that there's there's trouble. And so you just sort of dive into people's lives and, you know, and things like, you know, where are we going to get the money for, you know, paying for this? I mean, it's, it, it really brings you into the struggles that they have. Well, let's talk more about these sources that you're bringing to bear on these questions about gender and the family in the post-war. It's really fascinating to me. You're using, well, I guess two main new threads, one that maybe connects more to, you know, existing work on film and culture. So that's the the press and, you know, magazines right. that you're expanding the field or the casting your net wider. So I wanted to ask you about that. And then these juvenile court case files. But maybe let's start with the representation of the family in the magazines and, and literature that you're looking at mm-hmm. and how that's a departure from some of the existing work uh, and the source material it's drawn on for those representations. Right, exactly. Because, you know, you can't really ignore Elle magazine. It was it was a very important thing. And a, a lot of women read it. But again, that was really more urban, middle class, aspirational uh, women um, who you know sort of wanted to identify with that image. So um, while I was there, you know, I've been doing so much talking with people, but just had a friend who said, you know what? you know, my aunt used to read was, and so I got, you know, mm. titles I hadn't really heard about, like uh, Notre Dame, the one that has the cartoons. I had never seen anything like that before. Mm-hmm. Same with Antoinette. It was another, I have a kind of a lefty friend who said, you know, there was a, CGT had a magazine during the war. And so the, the version of Reader's Digest, which is Constellation, it was put out by, by sort of left people who mm. thought of themselves as working class activist types. You know, what's funny is that in some ways, the representations overlap, but, you know, in Antoinette, you're going to have the representation of, you know, here's the new woman of 1960, and we hate the bosses who are making us, you know, do punch cards all day, you know, right. it's like in the same magazine, right. so, um, you know, against exploitation of female workers, and so, you know, it, it, they, don't, they don't see that as an either-or, which is kind of interesting in itself. Mm-hmm. So, Sarah, I'm going to ask you a question that I kind of hate when people ask me. <laughs> about reception and about negotiating. uh, I think you kind of refer to it as, you know, how you negotiate prescription versus actual behavior and how people lived, what people actually thought. Right. And that's, that's always the million dollar question for us, really. 
Um, and so for the World War II period, my response was to actually interview people who'd lived through the war and whose husbands had been prisoners of war um, to sort of figure out. And again, there's no single one response to anything, right? <laughs> but to sort of get a sense of what was their, what were their concerns as compared to, you know, especially when you have a controlled press under Vichy. Um, so, you know, number one, after the war, the controls are lifted. So that means that there's a wider variety of things that can be expressed. But also, again, I think that um, I, I didn't, I thought I might be able to do some interviews, but it just never worked out. And so, but the court records, again, what you can see to a certain extent is, of course, the social workers are, are using accepted ideas as they judge the families. So you can see what they're looking for which I found interesting. Um, and then you do get these occasional voices of pushback. Every once in a while pop through and, you know, you're like, yeah, you go girl. Right. <laughs> but you, but you, you do, I mean, the people, um, there's like testimony and t letters that people write. So you do feel like you're getting, you know, and again, this is, particular kush, I was going to say, a, little, sure. a level of society, um, generally poorer and more working class or immigrant. But, you know, to me, if these things are trickling into that group, then, you know, that's a good sign that people are, you know, starting to think differently. Um, but, you know, again, how, how does, uh, I, you can never really answer that question. Sure. Um, you just know that, I mean, for example, you know, I could pick up an L magazine now and read it. And, you know, it's one of my guilty pleasures, actually. Mine too. <laughs> okay, there we go. It comes out. But it has nothing to do with my life, right? My real life. Um, so just understanding. And the same thing with the norms about sex. You know, of course, you're supposed to be a virgin when you marry. But, you know, I'm seeing sex left and right in the court documents. And, you know, so there's a reality that people aren't necessarily following what the norms say they should be following. Um, but I think what it does color is how they feel about having done something that's against the generally accepted norm. I think that in terms of whether they feel shame or guilt or whatever in response to that or, or, or want to push back against it. Um, having that norm there does make a difference, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not a straitjacket on how people behave. We, we certainly know that. I really uh, appreciate, Sarah, the, the way that, you know, you're using these juvenile court case files and social workers documents um, to get at, you know, how actual families worked or what their experiences were um, in this period. I guess I wonder about the challenges with those, these types of sources, how you think about the, you know, yes, there's, there's a presentation of norms, certainly, but how you think about the way that this may or may not skew everything towards the pathological in this period? Like, how do you deal with that as a researcher and a writer? Right. And it's true that, that you know, there's this, an assumption that there's something wrong in these families, right. you know, why, that's why this, they're in this particular situation. So they're kind of looking for something wrong. And I think just being aware of that mm -hmm. is helpful. And and the same thing with uh, with the juvenile, particularly girls who are often in there. I think I might have explained the term status offenses, mm -hmm. but these are things that, that girls Primarily girls, boys, you know, in France, they call it paternal correction, right? You can ask the system to intervene with your child if you're a father for no particular reason. And they don't send them to jail, but they get into this juvenile justice system for doing things that are not strictly illegal, like running away from home or sleeping with somebody or, 
being disrespectful or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. So, um, you know, it's judgmental by its very nature. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting when you, when you have your head in this material, it's hard to explain. And I have had two teenage <laughs> kids and I had a teenage daughter when I was in the middle of some of this material and it was really painful for me uh, to read. But you can, you know, sometimes you can tell when there's just a, a, an actually really bad situation going on. Mm-hmm. Um, like the father who said, well, I just swiped at her with a knife a couple of times, or the little boy who ran next door, his mom had threatened to hang him with a rope. I mean, yeah. okay, that is not acceptable right, behavior right. towards a child. And, and the other thing about the social workers that I also found interesting is that as judgmental as they are, they really look for reasons to leave the kids with the family. Right. Um, I think that they end up tempering their descriptions with that sort of reality check at the end is that do we need to take the child out of the family or, you know, does the child need to be sent to an institution to be straightened out? Mm -hmm. That's their least favorite option. They really don't like to do that. So, Mm -hmm. so I wanted to ask you, Sarah, about kind of the overall structure of the book and the question of periodization. So we've talked a little bit about beginning with the war and I want to come back to that in a moment, but what about the arc of the book as a whole? So you cover, you know, over two decades and I guess I wonder about a couple of things ending in 68 and the decision to do that. And then the idea of, you know, sub periods or categories within major turning points or milestones, how much can we say, or would you say after writing this book and, you know, as is reflected in its chapters or not, does it make sense to think in terms of decades with specific vibes or qualities? Like, is there, you know, a French fifties as opposed to a French sixties, you know? So I guess I just wonder about some of those things as you were organizing the book and thinking about the conclusions of the book, how much do those types of categories breaks, milestones, decades, and then the arc from the end of the war to 68 hold up? Right. What are you challenging as far as those markers go? Right. Well, I guess I wasn't sure how I was going to organize the book, but I always tell my students, graduate students in particular, especially when they're doing historiography, at some point you need to line these books up in chronological order because they'll say, oh, well, so-and-so disagreed with so-and-so. Well, you know, book A came before book B. Mm-hmm. So um, so I had decided I would just separate out the material by decade um, just so I could see that, the, the arc. And it, it turns out, you know, we think about the 60s or the 50s as having a vibe. And there is this sense that that you get in this period that they that people stop at the change of a decade and sort of market themselves. So, you know, and and that's why I found it really interesting is that in 1950, it's not entirely clear that France is out of the woods, but they're finally looking forward and not backward. Mm -hmm. And this is not just in the magazines and the periodicals and whatever. It's also, you can see in the way that people are dealing with in the court cases, the the number of cases after the war in which there were still people who were gone or had been killed or who were, you know, coming back troubled or whatever, um, you know, you still see lots of references to to the war. And I think in one, at one point, one of the social workers in one of the regions was like, okay, that's not an excuse anymore because she had the kids sleeping on piles of hay because the Germans had stolen her stuff mm-hmm. and, and the Americans stole her stuff. And, and, and the social worker decided, okay, t- statute of limitations on that right. is over. <laughs> uh, so that break, I wouldn't have known that that sort of happened right at 1950, because if you look at you know, big economic statistics, France is still in not great shape 
1950. Mm -hmm. But people had this sense that we're now we're finally moving into something new. And then by the 60s, there's there's a real, you know, this is the time when they're saying, you know, the new woman of 1960 in, in Antoinette. And, um, you know, again, it's that at this point now we always mark changes of decades, you know, in popular culture. And um, I think it's, you know, so the, and the material also, it was surprising because things like, you know, talking about um, les, les balles, that just disappears after. I mean, it's like somebody said, okay, now we can't use this term anymore. Mm. And so, you know, things like that, that just sort of really, the, the references to the three figures in the 50s that I, I just don't see anymore in the 60s. So you really do see things come and go over time, trends coming and going uh, over time that turned out that I thought, okay, organizing it by decades, but within those decades, covering more thematically it seemed to make sense so let's talk about the war a little bit because i mean i'm interested in the role of the war in the kind of argument that you're making overall but i was also curious as someone who's written so much and done so much research on the war that you were like challenged to (laughs) condense a discussion of the war into this beginning of the book and i mean of course some of the themes run throughout but you know, you have to kind of come up with a way to situate the war for the rest of the book here that is that is less involved, obviously, than other work that you've done right. um, previously. So uh, in terms of the takeaway for this book, as you move into, uh, you know, the later half, the latter half of the, the 40s and into the 50s, you talk about this wartime, you know, crisis of the family and Vichy's response policies aimed at increasing family size and strengthening the nation. And I guess I want to ask you just kind of as a, a core of the arguments and, and ideas that you put forward in this part of the book, the question of, you know, the success or failure of Vichy's policies in this regard, the relationship between the ideology and the reality for people's lives, um, how you handle that question in, in, in that first part of the book. Right. And I think that that was uh, a really uh, powerful learning moment for me when I did actually start to interview people mm-hmm. about the war. And, you know, the subject of the Vichy government, like, just barely came up. And, um, you know, even Pétain, I think there was one person, one woman who mentioned, and she was the one person who lived in the 16th arrondissement of Paris. This <laughs> is kind of the ritzy part of a city. Mm. And she's the only one that mentioned it in sort of a positive way. But, you know, the other, you know, so so you really realize that it's one thing to try to have this kind of uh, moralizing regime when you're at peace. But, there, you know, it, so long as France was occupied, it was hopeless. Mm-hmm. And think, why did they think when, you know, a million and a half married men, most of them married, are, are gone, that they can persuade women to go back home? I mean, it, it's just the distance between what they're cooking up and what real people's lives are during the war. And it is, is pretty wide and it gets wider and wider over time. And so that I think by the end of the war, you know, it, nobody's really listening anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just trying to not get their houses destroyed by bombs. Sure. So, yeah, I think there's a, a big gap between you know, people's lives and, and what the government was trying to do. Again, it's hard to find that in the official pronouncements because it's all controlled. But, you know, talking to real people and realizing that's just not something they wanted or interested in talking mm-hmm. about. I did get a sense reading from that 
chapter on the war, focus on the war, and then in the, you know, the next one that talks about those kind of transitional years of what you refer to as, you know, the period of flux, the sense of a kind of liberation, like not just a liberation of territory or a liberation of POWs or whatever, but a liberation along the lines of, you know, expectations, norms, conservative values. So yeah, how does that shake out in terms of values persisting in those initial years after the war, values that may or may not have been a reality for many people, but that they persist or, you know, get overturned or that people feel a tremendous sense of relief. Like how does the the liberation with a capital L, does that term apply to sexual norms, family life, gender roles? Right. You know, in the in my book on POW wives, I, I say basically that the the women wanted the families to go back to the way things were before the war. They didn't want to keep working, and they wanted to have children because they'd had to push push that off for so long, and and that's still true. But again, the point I made earlier, they want to go back to the 30s, not the right. you know 1830s. But also, what I came to understand is that there are two things about family norms. There are two ways of envisioning it. One is structural, right? A normal, quote-unquote, family has to have a father and a mother. The father's the provider. The mother's the homemaker. The children are under the authority of the parents. Um, you know, And it's sort of like everybody has their role. And what I started to see after the war was that that notion of the proper family wasn't gone it was still there but it's being changed from inside out and so you know the women i do think that for a lot of women there was a sense of relief i mean it's still times are still hard i mean they're still rationing for a long time but i do think there was a certain sense of relief um and you know not wanting to to be talked to that kind of way um anymore um and again for the men and you know i I talk a little bit about maybe this is because so many of them were gone from their families, but really wanting to have to be a real presence in their families in a way that maybe they were before the war, but they certainly are are talking about wanting to be there in their families. So it's a different image that's coming across within those within that structure. Mm-hmm. The, the content of each role is starting to change. Um, yeah. and, and an admission to because women you know, without women's ability to make do under the incredible circumstances of the war and the, you know, the fighting and everything else, you know, nobody would have survived. And so there's a domesticity for women, but I think it takes on a sense that it's not just something easy, um, but that it takes skill, right? right? And that women had, had shown that they had skill and ability to manage by getting through the war. I mean, in some ways, there's uh, in this part of the book you're talking about, uh, and, and these themes run throughout, the idea of, you know, changes in women's lives, increasing women in the workplace. And, you know, right. one would expect that uh, during and immediately after the war, there might be this, what we would characterize, and it happens in interwar stuff too, is this idea of, you know, crisis of masculinity. When is masculinity not in crisis? <laughs> um, exactly. But what was intriguing to me about this part of the, the book uh, is that you make a point that I guess I haven't read so much about, which is that, or anything about, that the idea that there is this increasing emphasis on fatherhood and the idea of fatherhood not just as an economic role, but one that is, uh, and you know, we're going to talk more about the increasing role of psychology, but the, the, the idea that fatherhood is a relationship. Could you say a little bit more about that? Right. Yeah. It's an economic role and it's the authority, the ultimate authority figure, which was a theme that came up over and over again during the war when the men were absent. Mm -hmm. And 
in the material from World War II, that issue comes up pretty regularly in the material that the POW wives are producing. Right. You know, it's like we face all of it. How do you get the kids to bed? And how do you, you know, but these are day-to-day problems. And, um, you know, and they're telling each other, well, we can't say wait till your father gets home because we're going to make him into a monster. So I think that's one of the things, one of the threads is the notion of authority, who has it, how it's exercised. And I think that the idea that the father, it's, is more than those things that fathers have emotions and that they want to be, you know, they should be playing on the floor with their kids and involved in their lives in, in ways that, you know, again, hadn't really been talked about during the war. Um, so I think that's, uh, you know, to me, that's what really changes is um, the way that people see men as uh, emotional, you know, it's becoming more of a relationship than a structure. Um, and that doesn't happen exactly, you know, overnight. But I think that's the change, the big arc of change that I'm seeing over time um, from the immediate post-war up into the early 60s is that, you know, if you think about it as a house, well, first they took all the furniture out and redid the house. And then eventually, you know, they start t- tearing down walls. And, you know, by the end, it's a, co- a completely different thing mm-hmm. that the, the assumed structure stays there. But the, the roles change. And I think early on, the biggest change is for, for dads. Mm-hmm. The other change that. Well, it's not that you're denying it, but you're you're not putting the kind of emphasis on it that maybe a more liberal feminist reading would is suffrage as a watershed for women after the war. The idea that the vote somehow spirals into other types of changes or ideological changes. And you seem to be really making the point throughout the book in different ways that there are other things going on. So what about the status of the of the vote? Right. I think it was a big deal for women. I mean, I think I put the picture in there with the women standing in a long line to do their into the vote in the 1946 referendum. It's sort of like when we're 18 and we get to go register and, and vote. And then, you know, it becomes clear that it, your vote isn't going to necessarily change the world. There was a lot of discussion in a lot of different places in the press about it. And, you know, from the communists up to the... And again, the conservatives are still there. They're just sort of masking their some of their real feelings. But you can still get more conservative sources. Um, and and they, obviously, like they do so many other places, because of their role as mothers and housekeepers and so on. But one of the things that I came to realize, again, is that that is not dismissive anymore after the war, that it, it is a skill um, and it needs to be respected. I think they're serious about that. And I think, you know, again, if you think about what they had had to do, you know, learning to cook over an open fire and stuff, you know, gathering the wood from the park. I mean, it's just remarkable what women had to do to get food on the table, much less doing some of the other chores. I remember one person talking about, you know, they had um, no clothes dryers and they had no you know, pampers. And so the diapers, she said she took them to a laundry service to get them washed, but she didn't want to pay to have them dried. So she, she told me, Holly was a heavy bag of wet diapers up the stairs of her apartment. This is hard work. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the modern, you know, you mentioned earlier, this idea of wanting to do a social history that reflected the women whose experiences during the war that you were more familiar with and that you'd worked on more, perhaps or in a different way than the fast cars, clean bodies approach. There is an emphasis in your book on modern appliances, washing machines, refrigerators, TVs, 
the growing affluence, leisure, vacations, these kinds of things. So how are you coming at that modernity? You know, let's just use that word modernity. How are you coming at that differently? And then to follow up on that, I guess, how are you rethinking or thinking about modernity maybe differently? Is that even a project <laughs> of the book? See, that's another question that I hate. <laughs> Right. I mean, because it seems to me that people that write about consumerism are making some value judgments and that it's sort of foisted on us by capitalist systems. And, you know, I tell my students when I teach a class on family life, appliances do not make life necessarily do not shorten the day of labor. They just raise the standards. Right. So you have to do the clothing. But it is different to do laundry once a day as compared to taking your diapers, however they could wash them if they couldn't afford a laundry service or hauling them up to the stairs, you know, that the, it still is easier. And so from real people, and again, a lot of the people, uh, World War II era, I, I saw sort of lower middle class, the, the, the women whose network I tapped into were sort of lower middle class women. And, and then, of course, after the war, the, the, the people I'm reading about, again, are very poor. And so, you know, life is so hard that they're not being encouraged to buy stuff and sort of giving into it and uh, an urge for luxury. This is like heaven. (laughs) I mean, imagine not having a washing machine and a vacuum cleaner and, you know, you have to take, I tell us you have to take the carpets outside and beat them with a bush, with a bush, with a, a broom, you know, that's how you clean carpets. So, you know, it's hard labor. And so I think that from my point of view, that was something that made families feel like progress was being made in the country, that they were able to, to, to have access to these things. You know, th- there's a sense there that, you know, they've turned the corner and even by the end of the decade, well, you know, we're catching up to the United mm-hmm. States. And I think there was a certain level of pride about that. And I think it is linked to some extent. What I was happy to see was that all of these modern conveniences do trickle to the working class. I had no idea. And that's why I emphasize the family allowances is that that's a major way that these families can afford this stuff is that, you know, the, the, the jump in, in their income through family allowances and loans that they can get to purchase appliances and all of that just makes it possible for them to have this stuff. Um, of course, in electricity, that's the other, <laughs> that's the other sure. thing you need. So again, to me, it's, you know, yeah, I'm not saying it's not about corporations trying to sell stuff. It certainly is. But I think, I think, you know, here I am in my office with a computer and we can Skype, you know, to look down at somebody and think that, well, they're only buying this stuff because the companies are selling it to them is to not really, again, put yourself in the shoes of somebody who, mm. you know, is living under, you know, relatively poor circumstances in a, in a time of a lot of short, uh, shortages and hardship. Mm. You also talk, Sarah, about the rise in divorce in this period. So there's things bringing families together. There are families, obviously, that never can come together in the same way again after the war for various reasons. And I guess that the divorce in particular, I mean, a, a lot of these issues are connected, like the, the adoration familiale um, is obviously connected mm-hmm. to, to legislation and policy. But divorce made me think about how the book is dealing with the intersection between, you know, the world of representation and prescription that's either cultural or social, the material conditions of people's everyday lives, and then also the state and the the role of legislation in all of this. So how are those things interacting? And, and what would you say about that? Divorce just makes me think about it. But of course, divorce isn't the only category of, of change. Right. And I think that, you know, sort of an underlying thing 
through the 50s and certainly into the 60s is the idea that striving for my own personal happiness and fulfillment is is a good thing. (laughs) It's not a bad thing. And that, I think, you know, the the moving away from a religious worldview to a worldview in which, you know, my my ability to fulfill whatever my personal needs are is, is worth paying attention to. I think that's a big difference from the war where you know, especially for women, it was all about self-sacrifice. But now all of a sudden they're saying, yeah, you know, mothering is a hard job and you need a little time off to yourself. I mean, you know, you would never have seen that kind of, you know, abomination in the Vichy materials, you know. There's still a sense that if a, a, a husband cheats on a wife, she should forgive him um, and stay together for the family. But there is some, there are people questioning that and saying it's not always the best choice. So, you know, I think that people are feeling that to think about making decisions based on personal happiness, again, part of the family, but um, it is, is legitimized in new ways. And that, I think, uh, you know, the divorce issue is interesting because after World War II, it goes up everywhere in the world, but then it levels off and, you know, sort of stays at a higher level. Um, and then it jumps again when you get into the, to the late 60s. But yeah, I think it's people, it's less stigmatized. Again, it's not where we are but you know it's not unimaginable it doesn't make you as disreputable as it would have as a woman before the war i think so obviously i mean particularly given uh the emphasis on these juvenile court records the role of children and adolescents and the question of parenting is these things play a big role in 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 the book how does the book get us to think differently about adolescence and and childhood uh and particularly using these sources I mean, it tells you so much about how people are thinking about family life when you see how they think about children. And again, I I don't know that fathers just looked at their kids this way, but, you know, you can't look at your child as a little feeding tube that's not interesting until they can have a conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, which uh, Pernou in her book, Baby Book, puts in in 1956, you know, that, again, a different way of at least admitting to (laughs) thinking about children, Mm -hmm. especially for fathers. I suspect that child raising in the 50s, and I don't just suspect it because I was there in 1960 at the age of three, and I remember seeing things that kind of shocked me, like people smacking their kids in ways that... Americans really don't, even back then, didn't do. So I suspect that it would strike us as still very, very strict. But I think it's still a level less um, brutal and less, um, you know, more understanding of childhood or more permissive is probably not the right word to use, but something along those lines, but very weak um, than than it had been. And again, children, I mean, school age, school leading age is being extended. um, So that is creating more opportunities for older, young adolescents, older kids to have more of a a life of a child. You just said something there, Sarah, that made me think that I wanted to ask you about the kind of comparative aspect here, the, you know, the way that what you were saying about gender and family life in post-war France compares to the German context, the British context, and then, of course, you know, the American context. And this la- the last thing that you said about, you know, American parenting may- just made me think about, I've had this sort of pet side project to collect all the more contemporary, like recent stuff about how North huh? Americans just seem to think that French women and parents know how to do it. Right. <laughs> um, so how do other national context influence what's going on in France in terms of thinking about this stuff or vice versa? I don't know. If that, does that play a role in the project? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more in terms of adolescence in the sense that, you know, the British mods are invading mm-hmm. or, you know, the rock 
role as sort of, you know, um, evil outside force of American uh, degeneracy coming, you know, trying to mess up our kids. So there is that level of it on the adult side. I don't know that there's so much a level of uh, looking at American child rearing the way we're looking at French child rearing now. But I do think that one of the things I do think is different in France from the United States is that, you know, the United States is in the hot period of the Cold War in the 50s. And so, you know, anything that smelled a little bit like socialism or communism or, you know, too far to the left is immediately suspect. And and so it was a lot of self-censorship, I think, going on in the American press. And that was one reason why there were so few voices challenging that pervasive domesticity for women, which some historians still say is overemphasized in, you know, a lot of historical works. But certainly the, the public face of, of family life in the United States has less variety, I think, than you, than you see mm. in France, um, because those left-wing voices are not silenced in France. That's really interesting. Yeah, it has a viable communist party that, if anything, had a better reputation after the war, at least, you know, shortly yeah. after the war, you know, and, and labor unions. And they're not, from what I saw in Antoinette, they're not ignoring women. They're not, you know, saying they need to go home and save the jobs for the men. They're, they want women to join with them. Mm-hmm. So. so another thread that runs throughout the book, Sarah, is the influence of the ideas of some pretty big pillar thinkers um, in the in the 20th century, really, and especially right. in the post-war period. And you're specifically, I mean, other people come up, but the, the big ones that you're looking at are Freud, Beauvoir, and Kinsey. So I wanted to ask you to say a little bit about the role that psychology plays in this period and that your use of these sources and tracking their influences uh, plays in the project as a whole. Right. And again, that was something that um, I was not expecting is the frequency of references to this work in, you know, the, the confidence in the in the magazines that are aimed at people that are not the elite, sophisticated L magazine readers. It surprised me, um, and especially, you know, they knew about Kinsey. I mean, really, but that book was translated the same year it came out in the United States. Um, and so that I, I just wouldn't have expected it, and I think the thing. So I think the thing about Freud and psychology or um, psychoanalysis or whatever is that it is a way in which people are beginning to think about the self. You know, I don't think that people never thought of themselves as being selves or whatever before, but it's giving a new language, a new way of understanding uh, and and validating that stuff that's important in the 50s. And um, Kinsey, again, it just surprised me. And, And again, I think that's just trying to think about sex more openly and thinking about Again, women actually having sexual desires. Um, and then Beauvoir surprised me also because, you know, it, her book, is, as far as the feminist manifesto, didn't really, you know, bring about anything revolutionary. But again, it was a way of women sort of saying me too, right, right? that I should be able to have choices in my life too. And that sort of it might, may have empowered some women to think in those terms, mm-hmm. but that's how it's portrayed in um, the, the, the sort of popular press. Um, <laughs> So, um, so, yeah, so I kept finding these references and trying to understand them. And, they, and then in the end, they did kind of fit in with the broader theme about um, a changing vision of the self and the changing of family from structure to relationship. It all seems to merge together. Um, so there's just a couple of things, again, Sarah, that run throughout the book that I wanted to ask you about. And one has to do with the perennial French historian's dilemma, um, how much of this is about the population in Paris, which is obviously, you know, a disproportionate 
like a mountain of the French population lives in Paris, but right. you know, how these sources that you're using, I should have asked you this when we were talking about them, how they not only allow you to access uh, different classes and segments of the population, but also, you know, how much would you say the book reflects a kind of cross regional perspective on post-war France uh, in this period? Right. And I think that has always been my sense is not to take Paris as, as France mm-hmm. as a whole. And so mm-hmm. in my first book, I traveled around to inter- interview women. And the second book, I, I used four different um, regional uh, departmental archives. And so I did the same thing here. In one case, I overlapped. I used the Nord, which is the northeast corner, uh, partly because it does have a fairly good size working class population. And it um, went through some particular traumas during the war, so I thought it would be interesting. Um, I did um, Valence because they had the records that I wanted, and they were more rural. Uh, and Marseille, which is on the south, you know, and is a it's a crazy place. Honestly, I had no idea what what it was all about. And so, yeah, you do see that that conditions are very different um, across France, and that things that are of concern in one area are of no concern in others, um, cars in Paris. Who has a car? Who, it's <laughs> inside Paris, you really don't want to have a car. But in these more rural areas, you know, they're starting to need and want cars. Um, that You know, you, you see how these things sort of make a difference. Um, Paris itself has just got people from all over the place, mm-hmm. and you see that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Marseille is crazy that way. <laughs> it's just like my, my vision of Marseille is like a, a drain in a bathtub. It, it sucks all these kids to the city and then they get stuck there <laughs> and so they um especially like unaccompanied minors i guess we'd call them um boys who run away from whatever and they land in marseille and then they get picked up because they're sleeping on the street and then they say oh yeah i was gonna join the foreign legion yeah that's <laughs> so it's it's kind of you get you get the sense of different material conditions uh different problems that are coming up um based on the region I mean, this whole thing i didn't even realize it was a thing but in the north when they're starting to build housing um i think it's in the north maybe it's also in Valence, but they use the term this is an f5 and you know i finally figured out that that meant it was an apartment with five bedrooms so we, usually you wouldn't have an f5 oh. um or house, right mostly it would be f2 or f3 um so there were sort of standard models of these that people understood when you use that language. And in fact, I asked a contemporary friend and, and she knew what I was talking mm-hmm. about. So, um, you know, so that that kind of things that appear in different places um, You know, after the war in the Nord, they had a large Polish population, which I didn't really realize. And um, they had them staying in barracks for a long period of time. So, you know, that's just not the case in Valence. Um, (laughs) uh, So, you know, just different things that pop up that you see, you know, France, I mean, talking about globalization always sort of makes me laugh because it was global. This is the global world and it always has been. And certainly France with its more open policy about, you know, uh, immigration and refugees back before the thirties in Vichy, um, had people from all over, um, and then um, you know, ab- obviously after the the wars, things changed pretty dramatically. But uh, in in terms of status, but you know, you get also waves of other people coming in. So, uh, so anyway, but they're global in different ways. Mm-hmm. I think the different regions. Um, so, what about this, when you were talking about the numbers of Polish people and people coming in from other parts of Europe? I think about you know the question throughout the book of well, ethnicity 
that kind of difference, both within European immigration, but then also the this is a period of you know, empire and decolonization, like what, what roles do ethnicity, race, empire play in, in the book? Yeah, it's also the period from after the war until um, after World War II, I should say, and even through the Algerian War, where Algerians are French citizens and have free, and you know, they can come and go. They're not immigrants mm-hmm. uh, in, in France at that period of time. And it's not just Algerians that are there. There are also people from Tunisia and Morocco. And so that the term of use was to call them uh, North Africans. Mm-hmm. So that's what the social workers would say. It's a North African family. And it's after 1962 that they become Arabs. And I thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Now they're the alien other. Um, before they were sort of alien, but not quite as scary. I don't know. I, you know, it's sort of a way of asserting that it's a region that, you know, is part of France rather than, you know, the, those people from outside. But, But what's interesting is that when it comes to the young people and the kids, they still try to figure out what's in the best interest of the kid, regardless of the parents, um, ethnicity or background. Uh, and that, again, that, that struck me as, you know, kind of remarkable. You know, I don't know. I mean, I imagine that the way that the social workers actually behaved with these families made very clear how different they were. You know, I don't, I would not pretend that they came in and we're all understanding and, you know, we're all equal here. But when they come to their conclusions, they are not, you know, I mean, think about in the United States, you know, we t- took children away from Native Americans. We didn't want them being raised by their families. So, you know, again, mm-hmm. we have to understand that this is not necessarily uh, a given, um, that they would try to keep kids with families, poor families that were from other parts of the world. But they but they did. It's sort of a, a logical transition at some level to asking about religion. So, you know, religious differences with immigrant and other types of families, but also the status of Catholicism in France in this period. You know, we talked about modernity with respect to appliances and things and material conditions. I'm not making some huge claim here about the overlap between modernity and secularism. That's not my intention. But how does increasing secularization um, in this period affect or shape the the changes and things that you're talking about? I know that's a huge question, but if you if you can say right. <laughs> And obviously what's happening, or maybe not obvious to everybody, is that um, practicing religion um, is beginning to decline pretty rapidly. So w- with Catholics, um, you know, there's a simple question, do you go to Mass every week? And so that's a, a question that allows you to get at, are people still practicing or not? And and what you see it by, you know, having had those questions asked of people over time is that the practice of Catholicism is dropping pretty rapidly, and particularly in the urban areas, and to, to the point now where it's minuscule. Um, it wasn't minuscule back then, but it was declining, and I think that it fits with modernity uh, in the sense that it also is a way of validating thinking about the self, of thinking about, you know, one of the things, and I'm not sure it's really until the 60s, but one of the things when they talk about about making decisions, uh, it's not anymore about being normal or whether it's moral or immoral. You know, it's about practical. The advice columnists are saying, you know, unless you have somebody with a lot of money to help you raise this kid, you better not get pregnant. They're not saying, you know, it's evil and, you know, depraved to have sex outside of marriage. It's a different way of thinking about it that that sort of spreads. 
Towards the end of the book, Sarah, you talk about the ways that new ideas challenge traditional ideas in terms of like heterosexual marriage as the norm. So in this part of the book, you really uh, talk about, you know, sexuality and, and, the, and the change towards talking about sexuality in practical and psychological terms rather than moral and religious terms of so something that we were just talking about a couple of moments ago. And he, in here you talk about things like virginity, frigidity, homosexuality, which is another thing I wanted to ask you about, masturbation. So how do you kind of close the book with these things outside traditional values and practices and norms? Right. And it's not just uh, fringe people talking about these things. It's part of the sort of mainstream conversation. And so, and again, um, that girls and women have sexual desires and drives. And again, I think, you know, it starts with Freud, right? And it, and it feeds into this. Um, and they, But again, it's not as if it's necessarily liberating for girls, as I try to make clear in the virginity games, that uh, now there's another tool in the, in the toolkit for boys to get girls to have sex with them, which is, oh, you're so old-fashioned. And so that's, you know, it, it goes against the older norms, but then the, then the old norm comes in with a boy saying, well, I still want want to marry a virgin. It, it's a really confusing period for people, I think. Um, the same with, you know, the whole notion of frigidity, the idea that not only should women be experiencing pleasure in sex when they're married, but if they don't, there's something wrong with them. We think of liberating as good, um, which again, you know, I wouldn't advocate that we go back to the traditional morality of uh, about all of these things, but it's also important to understand the ways in which it creates new and different dilemmas and problems for people. Mm. Looking at sexuality, the family, you know, relationships between men and women, all these things, I just wonder, Sarah, about your kind of frameworks for thinking about these ideas. And well, I'm thinking of what usefulness is there for something like Foucault's history of sexuality or changes in the way that we define and think about gender or feminism, either, you know, in historical studies or kind of broader theoretical field. Like when you were writing the book, how much did you feel like you were in conversation with those types of things and <laughs> or not or not? What does the book change for you as you think about those? You know, you talked about wanting to do a social history after noticing that there was a kind of skipping over from the big ticket political econ histories to the cultural representations. What did you take as tools along the way to think about these things? And how do you think about these right. things now? I do. And it triggered something, which um, which was my feeling after looking at these social workers reports. No wonder Foucault is French. <laughs> it's like this... It is sort of controlling down to the last detail, you know, kind of system, all-encompassing system that they're trying to create for kids. You know, it's like got Foucault written all over it. But, um, but you know, again, I, I'm not sure that I – how successful is it? Well, you know, a lot of kids are slipping through the cracks or not putting up with it. Uh, so there are, are ways of resisting it. But I think more than – trying to answer the questions directly that somebody like Foucault would raise, it made me aware of thinking about those things while I was working. And, you know, where we are today made me aware, you know, uh, looking to see. So I think if I hadn't, you know, I hadn't been trained in some of this stuff or read a lot of this stuff that I might not have been as attuned because again, in some, in some cases it, it's not necessarily completely stated in so many words. 68. Sarah. Right. There's no yeah. end of conversations and debates about what 
type of watershed 68 is. And this isn't a book about 68, but in some ways it kind of is, oh. right? Like it's setting it up. Exactly. So yeah. I guess I also wonder about that. Where do you see the book in relationship to 68 studies um, in France and elsewhere? Yeah. Is it confirming things that we knew about 68? Is there room to say, well, 68 wasn't, you know, it's not the turning point that it sometimes gets characterized as? Yeah. How do you see the book? Because it really is kind well, of haunting the whole thing, right? And so I just... Yeah, I know. I know. To start with, I felt like I would be biting off too sure. much. In some ways, everything changes, and in some ways, nothing changes. Right, I don't know right. if that makes any sense. What I found, um, I had sort of picked those dates just sort of to get up to 68 again, because 68 opens up a whole new set of questions. And I really wanted, you know, nobody really had studied the 19, late 1940s very much. I wanted to sort of dive into that period uh, and really see how the war comes, you know, how it really comes to an end. And so that's why I categorize this entire period as the post-war, as they're working out all of these things. And so the, the, the stage really is set um, that people are thinking about sex and sexuality, that the moralizing vision is, is, you know, falling away and more psychological vision is taking hold. And, you know, all these discussions are taking place and expectations are changing. And it's happening earlier than I would have expected to find it, you know, as far back as the 50s, that some of the stuff is already happening. And in fact, I think I, I found one of the early refer, uh, uses of the word sexual revolution and I think it was an article that Pearl Buck wrote, of all things, about France, I think she wrote. Anyway, um, so in that way, it's, it's sort of the end of the story. It, it's sort of, it's not a turning point because the stuff is already there, but I think it sort of takes it in a completely different way. Um, it, it, it is a turning point because people felt like it was a turning point and because things happened that, you know, during the, during 68 that, changed the rules of the game, you know, in so many ways, you know, to me, that introduces a whole new era, even though I wouldn't say that the way in which people live their lives and raise their kids has gone through a revolutionary change. I don't think it did. But it introduced a whole new set of things to the way of thinking about and talking about family and marriage and sex that I think is, is new and different. You know, there's a point where, you know, this whole thing about, oh, my goodness, we have washing machines and TVs, and this is great, and this is wonderful. And, you know, and again, I, I don't want to make fun of that because, you know, life had been hard. But when you get to the next generation and they've grown up with this stuff, it's just not enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, sort of the emptiness of it starts. So so there, it's just sort of like, okay, here we are, now what? Um, and I think that's kind of why... You're right. It does sort of haunt the book. Um, and so maybe, I don't know, <laughs> there are a lot of people doing 68, but I, I, I think um, it would have been a different story to tell about 68. And I hope people who are interested in 68 will, will read this book and kind of think about it's It's kind of like Vichy, you know, everything changes and nothing changes. Um, but it kind of depends on how you're thinking about it. So, you know, families didn't revolutionize themselves to being conservative all at once, and then suddenly liberate themselves. But they think about these things as turning points mm -hmm. in their lives. And and the public rhetoric changes, and they see these as milestones. And so I think, you know, that is something that's important and relevant to, to what happens in 68. Well, so I 
I want to end by asking you what you're working on now. And I, after this part of our conversation, I kind of want you to say, well, it's going to be a box set and <laughs> I'm just going to keep going. Yeah, I know. Maybe that's not what you're working on now. What are you actually working well, on now? I, Yeah, I might end up in the 60s. So um, I got really interested in these advice columnists. Um, one of the outside readers when my book was under review uh, had written about you know, these vice columnists and the names of the women who are writing them. And, and that person said, well, you know, who are these people? And so I started to look into who they were. And what I discovered is that the, there's two women, Marcel Leclerc and Marcel Segal. One was Marcel Leclerc wrote for Marie Claire and Marcel Segal wrote for Elle. And I'm trying to track them down. Uh, also, the woman who wrote the baby book, Laurence Pernou. And so I've met the son and the granddaughter of the book, the baby book woman. And I met the grandson of Marcel Leclerc. And their, her life is particularly interesting because it intersects with so many different things in the 20th century. I had a little thing that I drew with all the lines from everything from the Spanish Civil War, because she was friends with Federico Garcia Lorca. She grew up in Chile. She wrote her first books in Spanish to all of the circles in the 20s, like André Montbois, and her husband was Jean Prévost, and all these wow. you know circles of authors. And then in, in the 1970s, she put, publishes something called Le Livre Noir de l'Avortement, which is all these letters she'd gotten from women and how awful it is that they, you know, find themselves in these situations and it's time for abortion, even though, you know, she, she just was like in the middle of so much social change um, that I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to do all three of them or one of them, but, um, but their lives connect. And, and, you know, Marcel Segal was a Russian immigrant who, you know, left Russia and then uh, had to go underground during the war. And, um, and she's just, she's the one I can't find any personal traces of, uh, which really frustrates me because in, in some ways she's my favorite, <laughs> you know, that these are really important lives and not only in that they interacted with readers and I find out from both grandchildren, there were our real letters. I mean, this is not fake. And in both cases, they claim that their grandmothers responded to every letter, which is, you know, I would just so love to have those. Mm, yeah. <laughs> But anyway, so I'm, I'm, you know, and again, so these women go forward into 1968. And so I'm, I, it's possible that I could end up there, but I'm not quite sure how I'm going to, you know, I've just been poking around looking and finding people and seeing what I can find um, of these women. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how it's, what it's going to come into. Well, keep me posted. Uh, Sarah, I, will. I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book. Well, thank you. I mean, it's so much fun to have somebody who's read the book and, and is interested in it to talk to. <laughs> rare in our profession so thank you it's a real pleasure Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.